As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to The Times. To find out more, head to thetimes.co.uk. Every goal, every game, everywhere. The Times and The Sunday Times, now with Goals. Hello and welcome to The Game Podcast. I'm Gabriel Marcotti, and I'm especially delighted this week for two reasons. One, Rory K. Smith, uh, as you know, was scheduled to be on, but he won't be able to join us. But then it gets even better because we get, making his debut on The Game Podcast, the legendary, very, very competent Martin Ziegler, who uh, comes from a long line of conservationists. So welcome, Martin. We're also joined by Alison Rudd, who perhaps is having some issues with her coffee or tea or whatever that is. And we're joined by James Scowcroft, who has just purchased a giant telephone. Coming up, we'll be talking FIFA and the bizarre events at Old Trafford. But first, let's focus on what happened at Wembley in the League Cup final. Martin, when I was writing the script, I normally do this sort of in order of importance, and I was sort of agonizing over whether United playing Arsenal is more important than Liverpool playing City in the League Cup final. What do you think? That crossed my mind as well um, when I was thinking about it on, on Saturday. And initially I would have thought maybe the League, but actually in terms of the, the sheer drama and the fact of what it means for Man City just to be winning... Um, trophies with Guardiola on his way. Actually, actually, I I think it might be more significant the the Capital One Cup final. Well, just so you know, and in case our readers haven't seen the paper edition, yes, the Times uh, is a newspaper as well. You can get an actual edition you can hold in your hands and not just read on your your various devices. Our editors obviously think that uh, United and Rashford is more important because that's what's on the cover of the game. I just thought that was interesting. Scully, it was struck me before the game, I, I was watching it and, and right down to, 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 to what I read on Saturday, and they made it seem as if you had to pick Joe Hart and it was going to be a huge problem if you pick Caballero because Caballero's rubbish and, and Joe Hart is Joe Hart and whatever. And we all know how it turned out. City eventually winning on, on penalties. Pellegrini with that wonderful line, uh, which he gave to Matt Dickinson and others, no doubt, where he said, you know, I'd rather lose a final rather than uh, lose my word or lose my face, because apparently he promised Caballero that he would be the cup keeper. Like, if, if you were Pellegrini's boss, would you be annoyed with him? Say, like, listen, I don't pay you to go and give your word to back up schlubs. I pay you to deliver silverware. Well, ultimately, you do, don't you? It's look, it's it's a gamble, and it's a gamble where he can uh, look back now with a a little smile, and, and he's proved everybody wrong, hasn't he? But if it backfires and Man City lose, and the goalkeeper doesn't have the best of games, then I think Pellegrini would be in. He might get sacked at the end of the season. Yeah, he <laughs> could well be. I, I do understand it. What you have to understand in football, especially as a manager and inside a football club, it's not just about eleven players. You know, it's a big family. Well, like Man City, I'd say it's probably twenty-five players, and they all train together. They all stay in hotels together. It is one big family, and you need to keep those players outside the starting eleven happy. 
You need to, you can't dismiss them, you can't just ignore them. Some managers do and they get it wrong. And I think Pellegrini, a good friend of mine, Richard Wright, is in that squad, doesn't play. And he said he speaks to every single person of the squad every day. If they come in, he'll, he'll go over, even the guys that aren't playing, he'll make a beeline to, you know, is everything okay, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I think it's very important. I think it's good man management skills as well. Promising a guy he's going to play in the League Cup. And I, I mean, I think it's pretty much read that this is part of the way they convinced him to come in addition to paying him a whopping amount of money to be Joe Hart's backup was that you know you'll get to play in in the crappy cup tournaments like like this one I mean I'm sorry it's a Mickey Mouse cup who cares it's, about it's, it anyway. all, it's all, yeah, well it's, exactly. it's, it's all relative right would you have made that that pledge to somebody or should a manager kind of always reserve the right to do what he thinks is well best? if you don't think you can see it through then don't make the pledge if if he feels that's the best way of managing his team and it's different when you come to managing goalkeepers because once they're in they're in and unless they have a terrible run of form or make a number of really crass errors they're going to stay there for most of the season so what do you what do you do with the with the guy who's warming the bench every week you have to manage him the way you think best and it 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 will vary from manager to manager club to club and goalkeeper to goalkeeper and if Pellegrini decided this was good and it sounds like it was not just good for the individual it sounds like the rest of the team were really behind the decision and that if he had suddenly instituted Joe Hart a lot of the players would have felt a little bit embarrassed or bad for him or certainly a negative emotion the other way you could look at it is in purely pragmatic terms which is that he didn't rest anybody else for the cup final so that's a pretty darn strong city team if they couldn't amongst themselves do it regardless of what sort of form Willie was in then then you know, they don't deserve to win it at all. By the way, I, I thought was, I loved the trophy. When they did the trophy ceremony, they're all sort of passing the trophy. Like, Caballero gets it, lifts it, he passes it to Joe Hart, who kind of very politely just passes it on to the next guy. Because I don't think he played in the in the previous rounds, did he? Either, like Joe Hart. No, no I've seen I, it. I, I thought that was kind of cool, like, relative to the way some other people uh, behave. And then I saw Scoey's friend, Richard Wright, take the trophy and jump around with it. It's like, yeah, yeah, it's on me. Right? That was him? That's him. It's got to do something, isn't it? Martin, what struck me about this game was Jurgen Klopp played Lucas at the back. Now, it's something we, we, we've seen before, and there is a there's a whole philosophy that you know you really only need one big centre back, and maybe you're better off having a smaller, quick one than than having Colo Torre. Uh, although then you ended up with Colo Torre because uh, uh, Sacco banged his head and had to come off. But City should have wrapped this game up quite early, right? They certainly had the opportunities and uh, and, and the penalty. Were, were Liverpool a bit fortunate? Yeah, really fortunate. I mean, that, I mean, how that, that was the most ridiculous non-penalty decision ever alleged. Well, almost. I think one of the most ridiculous ones I've seen. It seems so blatant. Can we name and shame the referee? Anybody knows who, what his name is? His name is Parson. It's like Dawson, only misspelled with a P. And Alison, our qualified referee, will no doubt stick up for him in a second. But please, go ahead, Martin. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I mean, Sterling's miss, and again, that was um, astounding. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I didn't think that Lucas playing, he didn't look particularly comfortable to me there. I know you, obviously, Barcelona have got Mascherano, the <laughs> ultimate small <laughs> centre-back. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Mascherano, um, I don't think you can say Lucas is no Mascherano, that's for sure. Lucas yeah. played well, though. Doesn't anyone agree with me? Lucas played really well. I don't, I don't think Lucas was, was the problem. I think the problem were, was the people around him and the fact that City are, are a better team. You didn't think he was comfortable there, did you? I don't see... You can assume he wasn't that comfortable, but I don't think he, the evidence says that he was uncomfortable because he, he read the game really well. He was he was heading clear 
almost everything he needed to head clear, he headed clear. And that's about anticipation, and especially if you're not the tallest. Sure, it's funny because Colatori isn't a giant either, which I, I'm wondering if, if City maybe could have exploited that a little bit differently, but then they guess so they went into the lineup with the, with, with the little people. There was only so much they could do. On, on the Pawson Aguero penalty decision, you're... you're I can, can, you, can you provide only, an explanation? I, yeah, I, I think the explanation might be that uh, to attempt the uh, the no look tackle was so <laughs> was so far from what Pawson's ever been taught might happen in the penalty era. He just couldn't believe his eyes and assumed that it didn't really happen, so he couldn't blow his whistle because he was hallucinating. James, you work with young footballers, and obviously you were a professional footballer yourself. That type of tackle that, that, that we saw from Moreno, is that, that's not something you teach or encourage, right? If you see somebody do, if you saw one of your kids do that, would you say, like, this is just stupid and risky, don't do this? Yeah, you have to, I think, especially in 2016, where we are now tackling, you've really got to control it. And we actually teach our young kids now not to tackle, basically, to to stand up, make a, let the, the other player make the decision, don't go to ground, you know, try and get back behind the ball. I just think you've got to be so careful with tackling these days, and, and especially with young kids, because they will dive in. I watched a uh, the FA Youth Cup game at Chelsea Reading on Stamford Bridge on Friday night, and it was just full of young players diving in. And just think, if you carry on this into adult football, you're going to get sent off every other week if you're not careful. And it was an awful tackle. I don't know if anybody knows this, but I noticed during the penalty sequence, it looked to me as if Pellegrini was on the sidelines with his friends, and, him, and whereas Jurgen Klopp went, and sat on some kind of like naughty step by himself. Is that? Did, am I the only one who noticed that? No, I noticed that as well. He was like, he was sitting in a sort of section all on his own. I don't, I didn't quite understand what the rationale for that was. No, the, ra- the rationale for that is, and quite a few managers do this. They take the view that once it comes to a shootout, it's nothing you can do about it, and it's it's wrong to celebrate an opponent missing. You're just better off trying to contain yourself and and, and not not get wrapped up in it because you can look a bit of a, an idiot. Well, especially what he, what he did do, the, the sort of the, the talk before the penalties, he was a lot more animated than Pellegrini was, wasn't he? But isn't that kind yeah, of... Yeah, that's when you can do something. Yeah, exactly. And you're right. You know, you, you can only... And, and I think Alison makes a good point. Is it really class to celebrate someone missing a penalty? No, it is not. I want to ask about, about Sturridge, Martin, because obviously he's, he's had his injuries this year. I, the impression I get is that in Klopp's mind, Sturridge is a better fit up front than, than Christian Benteke for what he wants to do. Better fit than Firmino as well. I know you, you've just joined us, or some of our listeners may be less familiar with you, but you know you spend time, among other things, hanging out with, with people from, from FAs and, and whatever else. Could he be somebody who, because he hasn't played that much this year, might actually play a big role with England in the summer? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, hardly needs me to say that the trouble with Sturridge is, is reliability in terms of fitness. I don't think it's just a club. I think anybody would he would be he would be the first choice for anybody who was manager of Liverpool with that squad. It's just whether he can he can get that fitness and and that, that's really the big issue. I, I I actually thought he played pretty well yesterday. You know, involved in the goal. You know what he you know, when when he when he is fit and match properly match fit, he's superb and. He's never quite done it for England in the way that he's done it for his club when he's been that fit. So I would be surprised if Hodgson would pick him over the other people he's got. I 
can't see Sturridge play, being right. the man for the Euros. Scowcroft is making faces here in the studio. You can't see him, so I'm going to call him out. <laughs> are you making faces at, at Martin's opinions, or are you making faces at, at what Hodgson might, might think in I'm terms of... I'm just reading your column here. That's what I'm making faces about, Gab. No, you're not. You're, um, not. you're looking at the front page. And you're looking at your giant phone. Now, I would have to say... What do you disagree with? A quarter fit Daniel Sturridge is better than a Danny Welbeck or a Jamie Vardy. And that is where England have been lacking, especially in major tournaments in the latter stages. He's probably not quite world-class, but a very, very good number 10 or number 9. And Sturridge, when he is fit, when he's half fit, is exactly that. I'm not quite sure Danny Welbeck's that. I'm not quite sure Jamie Vardy's that at that so level would you, as well. you play, uh, you'd play Sturridge up front? If, all if day long. All day long. With Rooney behind? Or what do you do with the hurricane? Uh, I would put Kane and Sturridge. I wouldn't, I wouldn't play Rooney. But he's the only cap. You really hate Man United, don't you? Right. <laughs> final final. Do you disagree? From, from, from what? Do you disagree with me? You'd have Danny Welbeck up front, would you? No, I wouldn't have Danny Welbeck. But no, I think. But Martin's Sturridge is, right. Hodgson he, loves Danny Welbeck because he does different things, and he scored at the weekend at Old Trafford. I'm going to move on to that. It's one final final thing, just in case anybody wants to pick a fight. <laughs> anybody have a problem with Liverpool fans booing Raheem Sterling mercilessly? No, not really. Okay, good. Old Trafford, United and Arsenal. A friend of mine and a big United fan, Phil Brown, who does a podcast out in LA, he tweeted something that something to something to the effect of like it's a mix of like the under 19s midfielders playing center back and out of form attacking players. And then it's kind of what United put out. And I know they won, but my personal view is that it had a lot more to do with Arsenal being terrible than it did with with United being good. Am I being too harsh? Am I, am I being too Grinch-like? And Martin, I should point out, for in case you don't know, James is a bit of a United fan to the point that he's one of the few ex-footballers, certainly perhaps the only former Premier League footballer, who actually pays his own money out of his own pocket to go and support his club. And as you can tell from his accent, of course, he's got strong local ties. Go on. Uh, you've been a little bit harsh because I do have someone on the inside at the moment who gives me complimentary tickets. That's very, very good. Ooh. No, no, am I, being, am I being harsh on United? Like, should you yeah, not you are, be getting, you are, getting carried away? You, you just think actually very, played very, very well? harsh on United because I thought United did play well. Arsenal were awful, but some of that was, I, I just, they came short. They just didn't have Manchester United's enthusiasm. They didn't have the enthusiasm of Rashford and, and Depay. I thought Depay had his best game yesterday. I thought Michael Carrick was outstanding in the centre-half. They didn't have United's enthusiasm that they did playing these, these younger lads. Hey, Martin, how should we handle the, the Rashford story? How should we deal with the Rashford phenomenon from a logical perspective, right? Because you have somebody who has played, who started two professional games in his career. One of them was against, with all due respect, something named Michelin, and the other one was against an awful Arsenal team. But he did score four goals. Um, and if Lionel Messi had scored four goals against those two teams, he would have said, wow, this is pretty special. Well, How do we remain grounded in, in talking about I think actually, well, I think I think Sko a few minutes ago when we were talking to England strikers, you mentioned Rashford. Or was well, maybe it was you? Being, this being England, he's, he, we need to put him in the squad immediately. He'll be our England salvation or hopes and no, I'm joking actually. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, of course. We we'll build things up, build people up and then he'll have a three matches he doesn't score and then it'll be a disaster. No, I think I mean he looked really good. I mean I I'm an Arsenal fan and I thought Arsenal were terrible. Why were Arsenal so bad? I don't know. I think they. I think they. I think they thought that they were, they were going to be in for a fairly easy ride. They looked looked at the team sheet, thought, oh, you know, okay, this guy scored a couple of goals against a team we've never heard of before, but you know, we'll be fine. And actually, it was a, it was a sort of. It, I think it was complacency biting them on the backside. 
Uh, how, how would you describe Theo Walcott yesterday? I, I, I sort of watched him closely and, and I just look, he looks absolutely lost. Strange, isn't it? Sometimes he looks really good there. Sometimes he just looks, he just doesn't seem to get it. So it's a, it's a really strange one. You can't, you cannot predict which way he's going to go. Alison, I'm not, I, I agree Walcott was bad, but I'm certainly not going to fault Wenger for, for, for starting him because it's really against that lineup. You have, you have Michael Carrick, who I think is is older than you, Scully. Uh You've got Daley Blint, who... He's one of the most underrated footballers this country has seen in the last 10 years. Yes, but I'm talking about pace now. Walcott is very, very fast. Yep. And if you're playing Carrick and Blint as your centre-backs, you have two people who are quite slow and unathletic, not because they're bad people and they're very, very intelligent and making them make up for in other ways, but one of them is very old and the other one just you know, isn't... Pace isn't his strength. So when I saw that, I thought, yeah, this is this is good. This is what you want, right? United are going to come at you with the youth and the exubians, and then you've got Ozil or whatever else, and Ramsey just picking picking him off and delivering the ball into his face, and Walcott runs into it and wreaks havoc. Yeah, that Perfect should. Plan. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's and, logical. Yeah, and in a way, that might well have been the most frustrating thing about Arsenal. And there was a lot that was frustrating about Arsenal um, against United. But one of them is, if if I was at West Ham on Saturday, and Jermaine Defoe. If he'd been playing for Arsenal against that United side, they would have had more joy. There's something tentative about Walcott. He's not on the shoulder of the last defender. He's not putting anyone under pressure. He's not biting at their heels. There's no aggression in him. He 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 he, he plays deep. He's he plays weirdly. He does. You never know where he's going to pop up. But he never seems to want to exploit that amazing pace he's got. It's as if he's always wanted to play a central striker role. And when, you, when he's got it, it's like, I'm not worthy. It's like something he's co- coveted and he doesn't feel... He's not embracing it. That, that, you're absolutely right, Gab. That, was, that could have been the moment everyone thought, ah, this is what Walcott can do as a central striker. And he, hmm? he seemed scared to take the opportunity. Martin, what, 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 what's your take on this since you're, you're a long-time well, Walcott watcher? I mean, Alison's quite right. That's exactly what he was like yesterday. But I have seen him before and he's looked really good. It's, he's very unreliable, inconsistent there. And um, I, I think Benga's got to bite the bullet and say, look, you know, we've tried this and it's not, it's not working. And, hey, let's buy a striker who's actually quite good. He's been at well, Arsenal could... 10 years now, hasn't he? Yeah. And people, where really is his best position? Well, he's been injured half the time and his best position, I think, personally, I think is quite obviously on the wing. I think there's nonsense of... You know, in certain games, fine, you can play him up front. But, but there, Again, the, after the, ten years, we're having a debate. Where, where's his best position? I'm not having the debate. It's you, you and Ian Wright who thinks that you should be playing up front. I, 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 I think it's demented, personally. I, I, I see no reason why he should be playing up front. I think he should either be an impact substitute or he should be playing on the wing. I mean, to me, it's, it's very cut and dry. Yeah, to me, I, I look at which yeah. players are better than him in the Arsenal squad. I think Giroud is a centre forward, given the way Arsenal play with the short passing, given that a lot of teams that Arsenal are going to play against are going to sit. Then I, if, if you're going to sit against me, then I'd rather have Giroud in there who hold uh, the uh, ball up and mix it up, uh, you know, I or somebody better. For one minute, that Arsenal haven't got a youngster coming through their ranks better than him. Better than who? Theo Walcott. Yeah, they have him. They have one. His name is Oxley Chamberlain. He's already there. And no, he, no, he's, he's kind of like they're future very Walcott. good at youth and under twenty one level. Your Biggie Wolby guy, and him as well. There you go. I want to uh, I want to address for one minute obviously one of the, the funny highlights Louis Van Gaal throwing himself to the ground like that you know I, I know what he was doing he was angry he, he thought Alexis Sanchez died 
I was sort of impressed with the way he just kind of, you know, a man at his age just kind of lets himself fall, doesn't even attempt to break the fall. You know, that shows a lot of confidence. Martin, what do you put that down to? Is it, is it meditation? Is it, is it some sort of Zen-like <laughs> inner peace that he has? I don't know. I, I, I was in my mind wondering which other manager, trying to picture the other Premier League managers doing it, like Wenger throwing himself down or big Sam Allardyce doing the same. I, I thought it was absolutely brilliant. You know, it shows that Van Gaal, he might be a sort of grumpy old so-and-so, but um, he can still provide some very good moments. Alison, I read in one of the match reports, and this might be entirely uh, made up because, of course, the media lie all the time, that they were singing... Actually, well, I want to ask you, since you're the big United fan, you're probably there too, but they were singing... Uh, you can confirm this. Were they really singing Louis van Gaal's Red Army? Uh, they did after he fell over, yes. That's the first time they've sung it in a long, long time. Can you understand that, Alison? Yeah, because part, part well, yeah, because they're winning. Uh, like, part, we'll support also, you on the day, but then we want you gone and make way for the special one or whatever. Right. I, actually, I actually admire the United fans for their ability to do that because there are many reasons why a lot of United fans want Van Gaal out, but one of them is that he they don't like the way he just sits in his dugout with his clipboard and gives the impression that he's just cleverer and superior to everybody and doesn't quite connect with the club or get the club. It's become the Van Gaal project and they don't like that. So him showing that he's very cross and very annoyed and cares about the team and cares about what's going on on the pitch. I'll give you an insight here. Manchester United fans are very, very loyal. They're very loyal to David Moyes, actually. There wasn't many. There was a small fraction wanted him out, but there wasn't many who wanted him out. And they've been very, very loyal to Van Gaal. And yesterday was a small turning point that, that is what Manchester United fans want to see, that they just want to see that attacking football. The, the tradition, I think it's coming up to 4,000 games on the trot now where they've had a homegrown player in the squad. That That is their history, that is their tradition there. And there was a lot of support all of a sudden against Van Gaal, but with Van Gaal yesterday. And I think a lot of people, certainly on you know hardcore regular United fans, saying Mourinho would have never done that yesterday, what Van Gaal done. Martin... On this issue of, of playing the kids, the cynic in me says that that's actually the easiest way to kind of suck up the fans and media oh, is to, to just to chuck the kids in. And you know you're not going anywhere. You know you're going to finish top four. You know that odds are you won't be there. You're not in a position to make demands of the boards for, for, for signings in January. Clearly, I, I presume Van Hal said, yes, we need this and that so we can finish top four and the board probably said, not the board, Woodward said, go fish, probably because the Glazers told Woodward, go fish. Is this something that actually matters? Because obviously these people, none of these guys who've, who've, who've played, uh, none of these kids who've, come, who've played for, for United have much to do with Van Hal in the sense that obviously they, they, they came through the academy with somebody else in charge, somebody who I believe has been let go, incidentally. Paul um, McGuinness. Is, is, that, is that his name? Yeah. yeah that's, that's the guy. So this dude, Paul McGuinness, gets these guys in, he's released... There's all this talk about how United's academy is rubbish relative to City, rightly or wrongly. And then Van Gaal goes and plays these guys, and all of a sudden we're talking about how wonderful they are. Can you put some context to this, Martin? Well, if, when, you, when your resources are so, are so limited, then you start looking around, and yeah, there's an easy option, because you think, oh, people can say, oh, yeah, he's, he's giving the youth a chance. But, I mean, if it doesn't work, if it doesn't work, then you, you're no better off in, in many ways. So I think he's... Just counting his blessings that Rashford has suddenly managed to get four. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers, airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. 
goals in two games because uh, other people have tried putting kids in and other managers and it's not worked and then they you know okay we we tried and failed and move on try something else i think is i think it's a bit fortunate van Gaal that it worked out in, in many ways i think i think he's a decent player but I, it's not going to work every match for him from that you know from now on and i be i'm really interested to see what happens with rashford between now and the end of the well, season the interesting about Rashford is, of course, he scored at under 18, under 19, under 21, and Premier League level this year, which you think is something crazy and unprecedented until you realize that it happened very recently with a young United striker named James Wilson. I think that's obviously the, the warning, right? You know, And James Wilson may yet turn out to be a, an outstanding footballer, but it also shows that, that, that it takes time. I'm going to ask you, Scoey, because you have experience in youth football, and obviously you care about United a lot, and you know who Paul McGuinness is, maybe you even met him. This whole story, because there, there was this perception, though, that United's youth academy were now light years behind City. Well, it they is. were all awful. It is. And I, and I tell you, what's but happening? then these guys can come in and no, contribute. No, 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 no. So what's Gav, the deal? The, the story is, so Marcus Rashford, Marcus Rashford is an 18-year-old 18 18 lad from West Didsbury, suburb of South Manchester. This is the last crop to come through. There is nothing behind these lads. Marcus Rashford has been at the club for 10 years. So, so he's not like somebody who Paul McGuinness developed. He kind of inherited him from yeah, the bloke uh, who was there before. Yeah, I think it, it, the lad deserves a little bit of credit as well. I think Warren Joyce does a very good job there in the under-21s as well. Manchester United are very strong at under-21 level. They've just lost, I think it was 10 or 11 games on the bounce at under-18 level. Right. Right, which is... That's why Paul McGuinness lost his job. Not good enough. They're they're spending. The, the Glaciers have looked at the academy and thought, waste of time. You know, expensive. Don't need that. They're they're one of the lowest budget academies in the Premier League. Manchester City have literally just cleaned up at every age group. Manchester City were very, very hot on the heels of Rashford a year ago and very nearly signed him as well. But luckily, the um, the powers that be of Old Trafford have seen that and uh, penned him down on a new deal. But so, are you blaming the Glazers for the bad academy for the lack of investment? I blame the Glazers for everything. <laughs> yeah, clearly. Let's move on to uh, a bunch of people who have been almost as much of a punching bag as the Glazers, and that is the good folks at. FIFA. Now, FIFA elected a new president, uh, Johnny Fantino, who was the secretary general of UEFA. He beat Che Salman, Jerome Champagne, Prince Ali. Now, before we get into this, what do you actually want football's governing body to do? What should their remit be? All right, so please just think about that for a minute. And in the meantime, I'm going to ask Martin, I'll ask him, I'll get his input on it as well. But I wanted to get from you, Martin, Infantino getting elected. Infantino also wrote this package of reforms that was approved by the executive committee and then overwhelmingly, but not unanimously, approved by the, the, the FIFA Congress. He seemed to be quite bullish about things getting better. Do you share his optimism? Yeah, I, I do. I mean, I, I've always liked him, Fantino. I know, I know he's not everybody's cup of tea in England because of financial fair play and UEFA and stuff. I, I've always respected him. I thought it's, always thought he's been a really... Um, hard-working guy who, who sort of gets it. So I've got a lot of hopes for FIFA, actually, from now from now on. To me, it, it is pretty critical that he didn't just... He's, he's, not, he's the president, but he also helped write the package of reforms, which means he presumably believes in it and will make sure it's it's implemented because we've been here before with, with FIFA. Um, they either bring in outside consultants like Alexander Rag or, or, or Mark Peace or, or indeed Garcia and then they basically write reports and make recommendations and then they kind of put them in a, in a drawer and, and sort of forget about them, right? There seems to be a different mood here. 
One thing that, that he's been criticized for is that he promised the federations more money, and he gave this speech like, it's not FIFA's money, it's your money. So he's referring to the fact that there's $1.5 billion in FIFA reserves. Is that, but is that a fair criticism that you're kind of, it's like saying like, you know, you're, you just want to give money away to people and that's how you're getting elected? Well, that was all Blatter's successful tactic is how, how he kept power. So, um, yeah, why not learn from the master? But, I mean, actually an interesting point that he made is, is how come FIFA make things so expensive? How come they spend $30 million on the Congress? You wait to spend uh, one, $1 million. How come the World Cup... Wait, I'm going to put on my FIFA hat on this one here. Yeah. Yeah, maybe part of the reason is that while there's direct flights to Zurich from everywhere in Europe, and you can go by train, or sorry, to, to Geneva, and you can go by train even, it is kind of expensive to fly all these dudes over from Turks and Caicos and places like that, and there's 209 countries and not 54 countries. Yeah, 29 sure, million pounds even, worth? Yeah, but not 29 million pounds worth of flights, surely. If you have to charter planes and stuff? No. It adds up pretty quickly, right? Sorry, no. I, I, I was playing devil's advocate there, Martin. <laughs> please, please proceed. Yeah, so, I mean, I mean, I... I I think one thing he's got himself into a fix about is, is um, promising 40 team, a 40-team World Cup because I think that's a disaster. And I, I think that the people who work in FIFA have already reviewed this and have realised that it is going to be a disaster and really expensive and time-consuming and you know, fixture congestion will be even worse. I think he needs to somehow manage to extricate himself from that, from that promise somehow. I think he will, actually, and I think he... And I completely agree with you. I think it's a dumb thing to do. But I think he might also find out that I don't think there's many countries who voted for him on the basis of, yes, we're going to have a 40-team World Cup. Also because for a lot of the marginal countries, 40 teams also means you, know, you have to share the pie with, uh, uh, with, with, with more people. I was struck by one thing, uh, which is uh, this point that he made you know, referring to his track record at UEFA, which, again, as you pointed out, some people don't like him. But if we're going to look at all the crimes and misdemeanors about UEFA and all the scandal surrounding UEFA. And we're going to compare it to what went on in other confederations like CONCACAF or South America or, or, or Asia. UEFA is virtually lily white uh, or certainly has been under, under, his, under his tenure. While at the same time, they've given away a higher proportion of development funds than FIFA. And, and he made the point that if we rebuild the trust in FIFA, then we will get the sponsors and the broadcasters back. And this is why y'all need to be, even if you don't want to be less corrupt because it's the right thing to do, you should be less corrupt because it's all it's good for business and we all make more money. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the only thing you, you can people have been um, holding against UEFA is, is their response to the Greek match-fixing crisis and with Olympiakos being allowed to stay in the Champions League. Which I think there's a fair comment that Infantino's deputy has close links to Olympiakos family links, so that's why he hasn't been taking part in any of the decisions. So Infantino, I think he's handled that criticism fairly well, but clearly something which is um, people aren't happy about. But otherwise, as you say, compared to the rest of the world, <laughs> there's very the problems seem, seem insignificant. Yeah, it's, it's my understanding too that this guy Theodoridis, and you may know differently, Martin, he's a deputy. Uh, Secretary General, but he's really Michel Platini's deputy. You know, he has the title, but he's he's Platini's guy. Oh yeah, no, yeah, he's inf- he's, inf- he's definitely a, he's a Platini appointment, not an Infantino appointment. That's absolutely correct. There's a lot of there's a lot of gut reaction. I think it's, it's I must be frustrating for Martin more than me because I only dip in and out of this stuff. But 
there's a knee-jerk reaction from everybody that, like, they're all corrupt, let's blow it up, let's bring an outsider, let's put Donald Trump in charge, and whatever else. But the slightly more intelligent people make points like, um, why do we need FIFA for anything other than organizing tournaments? FIFA does a whole bunch of different things. They collect money, they hand out development money, they run international transfers, player, player registrations, they run tournaments, obviously. Allison, what would you... I mean, should this be FIFA's remit? Should they be doing less? Should you... How would you change it? What, what do we expect from a governing body? Right. Well, I've been doing stuff on football for 22 years now. And throughout that time, I have occasionally been asked about the role of FIFA. And as more and more evidence emerged that Blatter, in, in particular, was a um, corrupt individual, then why, why wasn't there change? And I always said the reason is... We have, the reason there's not an appetite for change and it keeps trundling along is that there's an awful lot that FIFA do well. I mean, every single time there's a World Cup, I always think, and I think most people think, wow, that was conducted properly. That was done wonderfully. They brought the caravan to town and it was beautiful. And people, you know, people, there's love there for the game. And it's, you know, it's not easy. I've organised tournaments where there have been... 12 teams and getting the referees and it's taken me a long time just to do kids football organization imagine if you're doing that in an international level it's hard work i like i like everything about fifa i like (laughs) i like fifa i want it to i want it to do everything it's done except do it without the corruption which is an which is a massive i know martin that sounds simplistic but in a sense, that's what this has to be the starting point for. Scully? The, the old uh, the Times editor, Tony Evans, hit the... Um, We're not allowed on, to mention his name anymore. I'll just have hit the nail on the head. He's, he's, I don't see everyone running down a pub wanting to talk about FIFA over a, a, a pint. Look, they've, they've okay, got, why, do you, why do you try to find other ways to make Martin feel, Martin feel bad, okay? <laughs> this is what he's been doing. <laughs> you know? They've got a horrendous <laughs> reputation. That's going to take them a long, long time to, um, I think, convince people and turn people around. I want them to run a proper World Cup in okay. proper countries. Do, do you want them to run women's futsal? Yeah, they, they can do all of that. I've got no, hey. no issue with that at and all. You're, and you're happy with, with them paying for it as well, because obviously women's under 17 isn't going to be self-funding. You're happy with that? Well, FIFA have to pay for it, yeah. FIFA well, yeah, have to yeah. develop the game. So Alison's right. Better facilities. So, you know, so you're, I, okay, you're okay with them spending money on women's football yeah, spend, and, and youth football and stuff like they that? They should spend money okay. on football from the very, very bottom to the very, very top. One, one final thought with this. In the popular narrative, Blatter was, you know, Blatter, who now I think we can once and for all definitively say is no longer the FIFA president and there's no chance of him coming back because they've elected another bloke, right? Correct. If the election hadn't been held, there was still some slim chance that maybe he'd appeal to Cass and to God and whatever, and they'd come in and kick Isayatu's out and say, you know, you're just acting. Go back to your your, your, your dialysis, and uh, and I'll take over. What strikes me is there's a sense that he's been some kind of uber-lord dictator all these years, but in fact, I had the impression that he was able to rule because he was continually cutting deals with people below him. Below him. And ultimately was beholden to him. And there are so many things that Sepp Blatter wanted. I mean, you mentioned the, the bigger goals. I can mention the women in skimpy outfits, the, the World Club Championship to rival the, the, the Champions League. Remember, 2001 was going to be held in Spain, if I'm not mistaken. The U.S. hosting the 2022 World Cup. There's so much stuff the guy wanted and he never got. Well, when he came up against um, big money, he struggled. 
basically. So when Qatar had big money and they were going, they had something, um, they had a different idea to Blatter's. The, 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 you could say money talked. And Mohammed Ben Hammam, who was the Qatari FIFA member, he was the guy who managed to get the support of the South Americans, etc., etc. And, um, you know, we know what all happened. The, all those three South Americans are now part of the US indictment. So, 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 but so the, the fact that even Blatter powerful as he was couldn't affect that much change and the new FIFA president will probably have I mean FIFA looks like it's going to be less of a top-down organization and he'll probably have even less power than than Blatcher did do you think that that's that's good for the for, for the balance in the future of FIFA well I do think it's good because you know why should one per, why should Blatter been able to choose the World Cup hosts and everything else you know he, you know, he did he did enough to get Russia that it just meant that people such as England or Holland and Belgium who were bidding, they didn't have a, you know, they didn't have a chance because not only were the rich Russians against them, they also had Batter himself. So actually, I think it's much more important that you have a FIFA president who lets proper democracy the all 206 nations. And I know, obviously, there's going to be issues there and with, with bidders and incentives and favours, etc., etc., and gifts to all these 206 people. But... It's mu- I think it's much more important that um, Infantino and his successors let the best bids win for these sorts of events, despite what his personal opinion is. Right. How about our quick hits? A last-ditch goal from Leonardo El Ciclone, which means the Cyclone, Ujoa, and yes, Leicester are still top of the table after defeating Norwich. Uh, Scoey, it's your old club, and you've shown them so much love this year. What do they show you this week? Character, resilience, all that good stuff? Well, all the cliches, isn't it? That they, uh, I think we all felt from the last-minute uh, goal at Arsenal, you thought, is that the end of them? But they've bounced back. By all accounts, they didn't play very well. They're a little bit lucky, but... That's what you need. Last-minute goal this time of year. Looks very interesting for them. West Brom Tuesday night. Tottenham Arsenal play each other next week. Could be very interesting. Martin, a guy named Farhad Mashiri has bought a 49.9% stake in Everton, beating out Rory K. Smith's American mates, John J. Moores and Charles Noel. Very, very festive. Tony Barrett reports that Mashiri is a Manchester United fan who once tried to buy Liverpool, but at the same time owned a chunk of Arsenal, uh, which he then sold to his mate Alisher Usmanov. Does all this makes you make you uneasy about this dude's motives about getting in, or is he just like one of those guys who, you know, those people have like a string of of lovers and they actually love all of them equally for while they're with them? Well, is that Mashiri? Well, he, I don't know, but are you honestly expecting that this lifelong Everton fan is going to come in? I know Bill can write, obviously, but is going to come in and with that sort of money? I mean, let's face it, the Premier League these days, no pe- no one who buys a club, or very few people, are actually fans of that club. I think we just have to realise they're doing it for reasons of, like, getting, A, think they can tap into the new uh, Premier League TV deal, and B, because they want to have the kudos associated with the Premier League club. At one point, it looked as if Tottenham might join Arsenal in defeat, and then it would have been a really, really, really good weekend for a crazy Claudio Ranieri, but then they made up the early deficit against uh, Swansea to win 2-1 and stay two points behind Leicester. Allison, is this Spurs not being, as Alan Shearer, I think, said, Spursy? Yeah, what I think... Pochettino's done lots of great stuff, but what he really has done that's impressive is he's taken a big bottle of very strong bleach, and he has chucked it all over training ground in White Hot Lane and said, let's just forget these delusions of grandeur, this 
belief that we are entitled to something wonderful because we are Spurs. It's as though he's started from scratch and said, nothing that went before matters. Your self-image does not matter. What matters is what we do now. And it's working. Well done, the part. We're big fans. Meanwhile, Crystal Palace lose again. 3-2 at West Brom. Scoey, they haven't actually won a Premier League game since December 19th, when they were actually fourth, albeit sixth on goal difference. Now they're 14th. Relegation is eight points away. People aren't talking about Alan Pardew as the future England manager anymore, except maybe in the Pardew household. What's the deal? What is happening here? And please don't just say like, oh, well, Pardew's teams are streaking inconsistent because this kind of defies logic. Yeah, well, the wheels have totally come off. And I think Alan Pardew owes a lot to Louis van Gaal for sort of keeping the pressure off him, really, because they're on an awful run. Um and if you'd have watched uh, the first half at the weekend, they were absolutely uh, dire. It's a very fine margin in the Premier League in football between winning and losing. They got above that. I think they got a little bit too carried away and thought they were something that they weren't. And I think reality is biting them hard at the moment. Percentage chance that they get relegated? Zero. West Ham overcomes Sunderland 1-0. But Martin, uh, I need to ask you about this Michael Antonio character. I, I just thought he was just a guy with, with two first names in the summer when uh, when he was signed and then, and then loaned out. Then you see him play, and he seems absurdly quick and direct and kind of unlike most other players in, in the Premier League. And then I hear that it took him a while to get where he is. Can you tell me more about him? Yeah, I mean, he, you know, somebody has gone through... Well, Several early clubs. I mean, he's got something like coming up to 200 appearances already. I, I always like it when these players make it at the last minute. But um, I, he, you may remember he, the, the slightly funny thing when West Ham owner David Gold uh, retweeted a message from somebody asking him to raise awareness of a person who'd gone missing in Manchester. And it actually was a picture of Antonio because he'd had such a rusty start <laughs> to his West Ham career. Uh, you know, they've had some issues there. I, I also remember when. Uh, West Ham signed Pedro Obiang and they put out a picture of uh, Angelo Bonner. Chelsea come from behind to beat Southampton away 2 1. Uh, Allison, it's not super important for the league, but are you seeing signs of improvement? And I know you'd love for this to happen. Might it carry over into Champions League run where they turn the clock back the clock and actually win it all? I was at uh, Cobham on Friday and um, Hiddink, he says the same thing quite a lot actually. He says he's, he doesn't believe he has any real influence on a game or what happens once once the game starts. It's about just building up the players' confidence and making sure they're all happy. That was perfect for what Chelsea needed because they didn't become bad players overnight. They just seemed to lose confidence in the system and the manager. That it's not enough. It's not enough in this day and age to do that to win the Champions League. He has to be a bit cuter and cleverer for that to happen I think and I have a question for you you're such a god when it comes to explaining European football outside of the Premier League what's to doubt for you this weekend I think I do quite well explain the Premier League as well but thank you Alison oh I took I tried to give you a compliment <laughs> and then you turn it back into an insult no it's weird because you have FIFA election Friday and then you got all these massive games uh and obviously big games here in England Barcelona against Seville they weren't outstanding but uh they uh they won and uh and extended their uh their unbeaten streak uh into Milan against Juventus, a Juventus 1-2-0. Inter were absolutely awful. And in, in France, our French, our French friends, Paris Saint-Germain, losing to Lyon and not looking very good either. But I thought the interesting story was Real Madrid, where Zinedine Zidane lost his first game in charge. It was the Madrid derby. They lost at home 1-0 to Atletico Madrid. And after the game, Cristiano came out 
And I'm paraphrasing here, Cristiano, so please don't get too upset. But he said he felt put upon and he said, listen, there are these people here who effectively who are not on my level. Uh, people like Hesse and Lucas Vasquez and Kovacic. And if everybody was on my level, we'd be winning. Then he later backtracked by saying that, oh, no, I mean, I meant like they're not physically on my level because the poor souls are injured. Uh, and, I, and I mean that I'd rather play with Bale and Benzema who are fit, you know, when they're fit. And obviously, these guys are injured. But I was wondering, and I'm going to chuck this back to you, Scoey. Have you ever played with somebody, you don't need to name names, who was clearly superior to everybody else or, or most of the other players on the team and who let you know in public? And how would you have reacted if he said, look, you know, if Scowcroft were as good as me, you know, we would have scored a couple goals? Or maybe you were the really talented guy on the team and you put down your teammates. I would have never, ever done that. Um, I think that caused the manager a major, major headache and it goes back to our opening bit where we're talking about Pellegrini playing the reserve goalie at Man City, keeping everybody happy. I think that as will drive a wedge through the Real Madrid dressing room. You've never played with somebody like that who said like, yeah. Well, Mark Venus, he's getting kind of old. We need to replace him. No, yeah? I was never at the level, Gab. I think if they were that good, they would have moved on very quickly. Fair point, fair point. No. Hey, the funny thing is that my understanding is actually Real Madrid, the way these people work, they're used to Cristiano Ronaldo and they just kind of say, look, that's just his personality. We're glad we have him on our team. We're just going to ignore him. And besides, you know what? Cristiano really is a hell of a lot better than Lucas Vasquez. So, so be it. Right, that's all we've got time for today. Many, many, many thanks to my guests today, the excellent Alison Rudd, the informative James Scowcroft, and making his debut... Martin Ziegler. Now, Martin Ziegler, uh, you'll note, is joining us from Yorkshire, but unlike Rory K. Smith and that other guy, Ben, whatever his last name is, uh, is not actually from Yorkshire. That's a fun fact, as you can probably tell from his accent. Uh, he's, uh, he's from the southeast somewhere. Now, please, please press that subscribe button. Uh, we're going to be back next week. And remember, you can get exclusive football highlights free as part of your subscription. It's just £12 for a 12-week trial. It's a wonderful way to complement a Sky Sports or BT Sports subscription if you have one. Uh, you can just search the times online and you can find out how it works. Till next time, bye-bye. Your subscription to the Times and the Sunday Times now comes with access to every Barclays Premier League goal. Refresh your app, choose your team, accept notification, and you're away. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. 